As you leave your house, you can already hear the toads trilling down by the pond, a sure sign that those first truly warm days of spring are going to stick around. Your path takes you by a grassy field, and your attention is drawn down to the early violets and dandelions just starting to paint the lawn in their variotous yellows and purples. The flowers beckon you to come closer. Once on your hands and knees, you can now notice the faint trace of a quiet hum. It's the sound of sweat bees and long-legged flies humming from flower to flower. Ah, but it's nice to taste the gentle flavor of spring. Love is certainly in the air. It reminds you that not all is red in tooth and claw, and the organisms in our idyllic meadow have found themselves entangled in a mutually beneficial relationship, each altruistically performing a service for the other in exchange for a small fee. And they get along with one another just swimmingly. Or do they? There's a sinister shadow lurking in the sweet springtime narrative. In the second episode in our series on the various forms of symbiosis, we take a closer look at the magnanimous mutualist, uncovering an evolutionary arms race where cheats, manipulators, and mooches are all trying to squeeze a dollar from a dime. This is the single acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Duck Norris here with Garlic Rosemary Quackers, the ultimate party snack. Garlic Rosemary Quackers are your go-to party choice. Dress them up with some baked brie or dress them down with Cheese Whiz. No matter what type of party you're throwing, Garlic Rosemary Quackers will fit the bill. Aw, shucks, when it comes to preparing appetizers, trust this duck. You don't have to pass the buck. Get one that doesn't suck. Your guests will be like, aw, heck yeah. Hey, how's it going there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, Teague, and I'm here with... Glenn. I'm Glenn. Thanks hey, for Glenn. pausing to let me do that, Teague. That was nice. <laughs> of course. Uh, and so, yeah, I always like to do a little research on Glenn. Um, so, Glenn, <laughs> I found uh, on your bio, it says that uh, you were a prison guard at the Bronx Zoo. That's um, right. So, specializing in the arid fauna, so the dry animals. <laughs> Yeah, you'd think that a zoo wouldn't have that mu- that many arid animals around, but we use them to um, kind of guard the prisoners or or give them to as pets for well-behaved prisoners. Oh, well, I was under the understanding that the prison guard at the Bronx Zoo was for the animals that were uh, somewhat unruly. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say Bronx Zoo? I thought you, I thought you meant the Bronx prison, which is where I worked earlier. Those get confused in my mind a little bit. But yes, yeah, the unruly animals, they're already in cages, so we put them in a cage inside of a cage to kind of emphasize that they've been bad. I specialize in the arid fauna because they were a little more dangerous, lizards and scorpions and so forth. And I tended to walk around in a suit of armor at that time because I was in a medieval-type role-playing. I feel like I might be getting us off track here slightly, though. Well, no, actually, it's not. It dovetails quite nicely with uh, our next problem here, which... Um... Well, I guess this was supposed to be a prep for our discussion of mutualism, uh, and I figured being in a prison guard on from a zoo would be helpful for that. Um, but as it turns <laughs> out, we have a slight dilemma here, um, because I know that you and my wife, who also works at the zoo, we have evidence that points both of you at the crime scene for stealing uh, some Madagascar hissing cockroaches, which... <laughs> well, I was I was borrowing them, first of all, and that was to show kids. It was to... Um kids interested in nature well so this is a serious crime and it comes with some uh some years in prison potentially uh however we don't have enough evidence we have evidence to pin that both on you um but we had a northern tree shrew which was one of our prized animals and that thing also went missing we just don't have the evidence to pin it on either of you Okay, that's good news, I think. So I'm going to be interrogating Sophia next, and I'm going to give you a little opportunity to make a deal. So the deal is that you can say nothing, own up to nothing, not pin it on Sophia, or you can pin it on Sophia. Could I? I could also admit that I did it myself. Is that an option? That would just lead me right to the slammer, right? So I probably don't want to do that. Yeah, you could. So, So here's the deal. I like Sophia, though. I care about your marriage, Teague, so I might take the hit. I don't know. I feel like I used to be in the mafia. I don't know if you knew that about me as well. And so sometimes it's it's like proper to take a hit. Even if you didn't do something, you admit to it. It helps the family. Got it. Okay. Well, that might throw things off a little bit here. All right. We'll play by your rules. All right. So here's the deal. If neither one of you uh, turn the other person in, then you'll each get one year in prison. 
Uh-huh. All right, got it? Got so it. then if you turn on Sophia, your partner in crime, and you say that Sophia did it, and Sophia doesn't pin the blame on you for stealing the tree shoe, then Sophia will get eight years in prison, and you'll get zero. So you'll... I know this. I know this scenario. I know this game, Teague. I've played this game before. I'm good at this. And then, well, here's the other thing. If both of you blame the other person, you'll each get three years for stealing the Madagascar hissing crackers and taking the northern tree shoe. All right, so... You can blame Sophia, and if she blames you, you'll both get three, get three years. years. If you blame yeah. Sophia and she doesn't blame you, then you get off scot-free and she gets eight years. And if you both don't blame each other, then you only get one year each. Well, see, I, first of all, care about your marriage. So I don't want her to go to prison for very long. And I believe, Teague, I believe in the power of cooperation, this game. And I'm going to say she, she's going to be thinking the same way, that we're both going to not blame each other and just get the sacrifice and get the one year. But if she chooses to blame me, and I'm willing to take the eight-year hit so that your marriage, you know, I know you've got a young child. <laughs> I have a child, too, and all I ask is that you raise my child. If I get the eight <laughs> years enough. in prison. I'll, he'll be basically 17 when I get out of prison, so I maybe have a little time with him before he goes off to college. So I'd ask for that time in return. That... That is a classic problem, you know, that I believe maybe it's called the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. All right. So you're going to be you're going to be the good guy. I think I believe in the power of good guys in this scenario. If we just cooperate, it's better for all of us. She may screw me over. But like I said, she has important things to do. Well, so as it turns out, Sophia is also a uh, kind-hearted soul and ah. has chosen not to pin the blame on you. So we have evidence that points both of you to taking our Madagascar hissing cockroaches, but the northern tree shrew thief remains elusive. That's good. Yeah, so this is the, the classic prisoner's dilemma. And I wanted to start with this in uh, talking about mutualism because uh, this was an experiment that was done uh, actually with uh, a bunch of computer programmers, and it was led by this guy, Robert Axelrod, at Stanford. And um, he had the prisoner's scenario, or prisoner's dilemma scenario, and he offered it up to a bunch of uh, programmers and other people in psychology to see who could design a program that would be, if you ran that scenario over and over and over again, what would be the most efficient strategy where you would collectively lose the least amount, right? So you would, after X number of iterations of uh, going through the prisoner's dilemma with one other program, who would be the one that would ultimately serve right. the least amount I know, of prison I time? know this experiment. I live by these rules, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. I know, I know what the winning strategy is, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I might so have been applying it? the wrong strategy all the time. I believe the winning strategy, and I think, I think, I feel like mathematically they maybe proved that it was the best strategy, <clears throat> although I'm not sure about that, but that you always cooperate with someone, but then if they screw you over and you meet them again, then you screw them over as to show that you're not just going to be taken advantage of all the time. But then if they choose to cooperate, you go back to cooperating. You always start by cooperating, and then you exact a little bit of revenge to show you won't be pushed around, and then you, but then you forgive and you go back to cooperating. At least that's how I handle my romantic relationships, but I don't know know if it's always worked, but that's what I heard was the best strategy, so I've gone with it in my life. Yeah, from a long-term evolutionary strategy, it's potentially the most advantageous one. Uh, So the program that, uh, that was designed to do exactly that, where you start off being generous, uh, was called tit for tat. And so as soon as the other individual or the other program would cross you then you would switch over and you would you would basically pin the blame on them but you wouldn't be vindictive so some programs were just you would always say once you got yeah you would always blame it on the other person then you get in the cycle of violence where you're both screwing each other over and you don't get the benefits of cooperation i believe if you do that exactly and so uh this program doesn't always win because if it just follows suit of a vindictive other program, then it's just going to get caught in this endless cycle. However, if it follows that strategy with someone who is totally naive and generous, then it will always win because it starts off being positive. There are other 
modifications to it that are probably a little bit better. So there's two tits for tat and oh, two really? and tits, tits for tat two tats. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> yeah, so you could be either more generous or more vindictive with the strategies. But one of the cool things about this strategy is that it maps somewhat well onto populations of mutualism or populations of species that exhibit mutualism. And so you have, it's called reciprocal altruism in biology, where essentially you're like, I'm going to be helpful to you. So I'm going to groom parasites off of your back if you're going to do the same for me. But if you cross me and you don't reciprocate that altruistic behavior. And I'm going to bring parasites onto your back. Then I'm going to bring, yeah, exactly. I'm going to bring all my tick friends. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that there were animals out there living by the strategy. Yeah, so if you one of the problems is like with um vampire bats or something that are potentially well they're parasites off of their hosts, but they have this reciprocal altruism within a population. By the way, I used to bring vampire bats around to the kids also, and that was a mistake. Just wanna yeah. throw that out there. I apologize <laughs> to to Henry. All right, go ahead. But potentially part of the reason that that was a former job of yours at the Bronx Zoo. (laughs) (laughs) I actually did that in the prison outreach job. But anyway, go ahead. So yeah, so with vampire bats, one of the problems for them is, so they they don't always get blood meals at night. And so when they return to their roost site, some of them might not be returning with anything in their belly. And so some of the bats will regurgitate up some blood and they'll share these blood meals with other individuals. So one potential strategy is to just be a total yeah, cheat never, on the system. Never bring, never bring anything back. Never bring anything back. And so to be able to... It's my to... potluck strategy for a while. That was my potluck <laughs> strategy. I just stopped getting invited. The problem is exactly because people can recognize People you. noticed, yeah. And so if you were... And I would in... try to pretend like I brought other meals, like I put my name you know, by another <laughs> meal, but then people saw that. So if you're going to cheat a system, you have to be good at it, or you have <laughs> to be going to potlucks where the people are really terrible at remembering who you are, right? Yeah, um, or they drink a lot and don't, yeah, maybe just don't notice. Yeah, so uh, with vampire bats, having large enough roosts allow cheats to exist through uh, time, over a long period of time, where wow. they might, you know, consistently not bring back food, um, but other individuals can't recognize so the reason you would do this is I got blood tonight, but tomorrow night, I don't know, I might not be able to find a good source. And so you are exchanging material now in exchange for uh, a later. possible future benefit. It's how bartering Insurance. systems work. Yeah. Um, hmm. So if I just go to big enough potlucks, you're saying at big enough roosts, there, there get to be more cheaters developed. They're more freeloaders at these big vampire bat roosts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You find that? Uh, And one of the ways or not ways around it, but uh, we'll talk about this probably in another uh, series when we talk about uh, selection is kin selection. So with some uh, species, individuals are able to recognize their kin. So who they're related to really well, they have mechanisms for uh, detecting similarity. And so they're, you're more likely, I can't remember, there's some biologist who said, uh, I, you know, gladly sacrifice my life for uh, a sibling or eight of my cousins. And so how related you are to another individual is going to determine how likely you are to eight display one altruism sibling. towards them. Eight siblings are worth eight cousins are worth one sibling to this biology. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, uh, it's it's two siblings. I'd gladly sacrifice my life for two of my siblings or eight of my cousins. Well, that changes. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about that math. How many siblings or cousins I would sacrifice my life for? I can bring that up at the next potluck to distract people from who bought the food. So that is a long sort of preamble to talking about the first of our types of uh, symbiosis. So in the last episode, we were we gave a general overview of the different forms that relationships between between populations in a community can interact with one another. Yeah. So when we look at the relationships between the different populations in a community, they can either be positive interactions on from one species perspective, neutral or negative. So with the mutualism, they're both positive. So both species are deriving some sort of benefit from the relationship. And what I, I, I think when we first were talking about a symbiosis, you had mentioned 
that a symbiosis for you had sort of this association with being like a positive thing that species. That was my ideal. Yeah, that was my dream. Again, I tried to enter my romantic relationships with this idea that it would be mutually beneficial. And I'm here to try and dispel that myth. <laughs> well, it's already been dispelled by practical experience. Yeah. Okay, great. But so thank you for reinforcing well that, giving a scientific kind of justification of what happened to me. Yeah. Uh, it's always a really, really terrible idea to use examples from nature to justify human behavior. Cause like the vampire the bats. Abhorrent. It may be bad to model your behavior, like regurgitating yeah. blood to your family for dinner. Might, might or might not go over well. Yeah, so uh, so when I think of mutualism, rather than thinking about both species uh, sort of in partnership, a better way probably to think about it is uh, the mutual exploitation of the other symbiont. So a symbiont wow. is one of the organisms that's involved in the symbiotic relationship. Mutual exploitation. It's a little bit, um, I don't know, shockingly realistic or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it seems harder to explain to my child, but I'm going with it. I'm going with it. I'm with you. I'm with you. So each species is basically trying to derive as much benefit as possible. Uh, again, we talked about last time that everybody's lazy. And so if you're trying to exist in a world to conserve as much energy as possible to be as lazy as possible, the more that you can exploit from the other symbiont, while at the same time giving as little of yourself to the other one, the better off you'll be in the end. Yeah, this was my potluck strategy. So I guess we can just talk about the different ways or the different things that are being exchanged in these uh, different types of mutualistic relationships. So uh, basically at the heart of all of these relationships is this idea of service. So providing a service to another organism in exchange for that service you're giving either another service or you're giving a resource to that other individual can you think of any types of services that animals might provide to it's one like another a service industry well we've we've gone over catering. the uh yeah taking <laughs> yeah, yeah catering maybe um vacation planning uh we've gone over the you know cleaning them for cleaning parasites off of them I think I was reading about the remoras today. I think remoras will clean off parasites, but then the sharks sometimes provide them with food through their fecal matter. I just read this, that remoras eat mostly fecal matter. That changes my whole perception of them a little bit. And that's a service. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, you may not want to do that in your own life. I guess others would be, you know, protection, right? Like like the clownfish and anemones. The anemone would protect the clownfish. Is it anemone or anemone? It's anemone, right? Anemone. Not anemone for our listeners. I don't know. Perhaps um, do you have a list of the, all the possible services ca- categorized for <laughs> I organizational do. purposes? Wow. Check the outline. <laughs> <laughs> so at the, at the heart of uh, mutualisms is an exchange of uh, either services or resources. And so with some of the services that we could think about um, are around pollination So that's sort of like a classic mutualism where the service is pollen being transported from one flower to another flower. And one of the things that I love so much about science is its incredible capacity to make accurate predictions about the world. And so within uh, this study of pollination, there are these things called pollination syndromes. And the pollination syndromes are if you have a set of characteristics of a flower, you and that's all you know, then you could likely predict what uh, the pollinators are going to be for that. So I had, uh, over the last few years, I've been transplanting uh, this plant, wild ginger, into my backyard. And wild ginger, they have these leaves that are these big sort of heart-shaped leaves about four inches off the ground. And then underneath, there's sort of this thick understory of all of these uh, tiny, or not tiny, they're probably about nickel-sized flowers. And all of the, the flowers, they don't smell super strong, but they smell kind of rancid, and they're all maroon-colored. So any guess what the pollinators are for that? Small maroon-colored um and they're near the ground and they smell somewhat malodorous. <laughs> so it sounds like things that feed on dead decaying maroon matter. 
bloody maroon messes. I would say something like flies. Flies? The flies pollinate okay. ginger? I didn't know that. Okay, but, well, here's the thing. So where are they on, uh, like, vertically in the environment? They're right Down. next to the ground. And they're oh. below the leaves. Ants. So so anything that would be down below the... Um, so if you're a fly and you're flying overhead, you wouldn't be able to see or catch the scent of these flowers. And so it would have to be something that was down in this, like, mini understory. Unless you're so, a terrestrial crawling fly. So insects on the ground? Insects that feed on decomposing matter? <laughs> yeah. So That's ants and beetles. Ants and beetles. Ants and beetles, yeah. Yeah, so so there are other similar stories to this around pollination syndrome that are pretty cool because you can make powerful predictions. So this is sort of this classical example in ecology of the ability to make a strong prediction about the natural world. Uh, and this is with Darwin's orchid. So it's named after Darwin. He was sent a sample of the flower back in 1862, but he never got to see it growing out in the forest. So these plants are epiphytes. They grow on trees sort of on the edges of forests. Uh, they're found only in Madagascar. And the flower itself is this really brilliant white color. Uh, it grows in the upper canopy. It has a strong sort of like spicy peppery uh, scent to it. It's really potent. You can smell it from a ways away. And then the most prominent characteristic is that it has this really long, deep spur. Uh, so long being anywhere from like 8 to 16 inches long. And at the back of it, it's filled with this really sugar-rich uh, soup of nectar. So based on the characteristics of the flower, Darwin was able to match those up with who the likely candidates of uh, pollinators would be uh, that would be able to get after that nectar um, yeah, and use the visual cues and the olfactory cues from the flower. Uh, he didn't get confirmation of this. It wasn't until about 40 years after he was sent the flower that the pollinator was uh, observed on the flower. So based on the characteristic of the characteristics of the flower, can you uh, take a guess as to who the pollinator might have been? What? I don't know. Long-tongued fruit bat? Long-tongued fruit bat? Maybe a like, really long-tongued, <laughs> long-billed hummingbird? Maybe some sort of hummingbird-fruit bat hybrid? Um, a monkey with a long arm. What would be one difference between hummingbirds and bats in terms of like activity patterns? I mean, oh, well, one is it during, typically during the day and one's typically during the night. So the odor, the odor would be drawing the bats. But I, I guess I imagine that hummingbirds can sort of sense the sweetness of nectar and they're maybe drawn to that. Yeah. Well, have you ever put a hummingbird feeder up? I have. And what color was it? It was maroon, but I got it from. <laughs> it was, I got it from the ground. I made it myself from wild oh, okay. flowers. Um, <laughs> yes, it was red. You're right. They're visual, of course they are, but maybe they have a little bit of a sense. <laughs> yeah, sweetness. So... I just think of them as sweet birds. Okay, you're right. So if it has yeah. a scent, it's probably more bats than hummingbirds. Yeah, birds typically don't have a sense of smell. Um, I don't know specifically with hummingbirds, maybe, but um, turkey vultures. Yeah, they're apparently. more visual cues they can and smell. red deep tube flowers. Um, so it could be a bat or what else? Well, that's... like I just said, turkey vultures can smell. So I think they're like, that's true. There are exceptions. <laughs> they're not, they're not attracted to sweet smells. I would guess. What else is attracted to a sweet smell? Um, I don't know. Some sort of, sort of, uh, miniature primate, upper canopy <laughs> primate. Well, so also, uh, the monkey paw. So they're white. And, and so I mentioned with hummingbirds, hummingbirds are active during the day. And so color is going to be flashier for them. But if you have a white flower, uh, white is really bright, bright and high night. contrast against the foliage, particularly at night, if it catches. So something nocturnal, something could nocturnal moth, could be a moth. Yeah, a hummingbird moth type creature. Yeah, exactly. So it turns out it was a moth, uh, a type of sphinx moth. And uh, yeah, and it has a, a little feeding tube uh, straw that's about 30 centimeters long so about oh, a foot Lord. long and so you're able to predict from the structure of the flower almost exactly what the species would look like that would pollinate it oh. and so with uh with these mutualisms between the pollinator and the uh pollinated there's uh sometimes there are generalist relationships and the flowers aren't necessarily specifically geared towards an individual but 
sometimes with this orchid, for example, orchids are notorious for specializing in pollinators. There, there was like a very clear relationship between. They the often have one, just one pollinator, right? The yeah. Orchids. Yeah. Uh, another yes. example of this would be with yucca flowers. And so um, I used to live out in California and they're Can I just interrupt quickly? Do you think people that study orchids a lot start to believe that they are like an orchid and that they have one kind of like one soulmate that kind of fits them? And maybe again, I take a lot of what you're saying and try to apply it to my romantic relationship. So it feels like a model that doesn't might not might be too unrealistic for humans to find your one soulmate. Not that if any of our listeners are doing that, I think it's a great, great, great thing to try. But the odds are tough if there's just one soulmate out there. You might not find them. Yeah, I mean, with my my dog, uh, I certainly your dog is your soulmate. Uh, well, no, <laughs> don't tell my wife. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just think that, you know, my dog has an awfully similar personality to me. And I think people are probably attracted to, uh, you know, pets that are similar to them and potentially attracted to plants that are similar to them. So maybe people that are attracted to orchids, there's a certain personality. Um, yeah. They're also really difficult to raise, so maybe they're looking for something in their romantic life that's particularly challenging. It's challenging. Maybe help them grow through challenges. Okay, good answer. I mean, I think I would prefer, not saying this is what I want in my romantic relationships, but as a plant, I would want to have a couple pollinators, just in case something happened to one of the species. You still have a backup plan. Yeah. And I want to say this out to my girlfriend, I don't have a backup plan for you. Okay, <laughs> great. In place. At all. So there are a bunch of different species of yucca and there are a bunch of different species of moths that each specialize. It, it's either one or like just a very few individual moths that will pollinate a single species of yucca. And they have a crazy specialist relationship that nothing else can enter into. Um, so the female will go to a flower and she most moths have... Uh, single sucking part but they have these two little tentacles and she'll use those to rasp pollen tentacles they have tentacles yeah like little mouth tentacles. like little octopus okay yeah that's that's maybe that's why they call it yucca because that's a little (laughs) little yucky um (laughs) so she'll rasp off some pollen and then she'll tuck it on under her chin and then she'll fly to another flower so the flower is getting cross-pollinated with a different individual, so mixing right. genes. And then she'll uh, enter the flower, she'll lay her eggs inside the ovary, which is the structure of the flower that will ultimately become the fruit and have the seeds within it. She'll lay her eggs in there, and then after she lays her eggs inside the ovary, she'll deposit the pollen on uh, the top of the stigma, the female reproductive structure. And so she's fertilized, or she's pollinated the flower, and the flower can detect how many individual uh, eggs were laid in there or how many larvae are feeding on the eggs. So the larvae of the ca- or the caterpillars of the moth eat nothing but the seeds of the yucca plant. And if there are too many caterpillars inside of the flower, the yucca will stop developing the flower and will drop it off. So it'll just shed that flower. So it prevents the yucca moth from cheating the system. So if you only if you have a specialist relationship with one other individual, you're going to do everything in your power to maintain the power dynamic because you rely on that other species and it relies on you. All right. So you want the mutual exploitation to be balanced. You don't want it to you don't want to get taken advantage of too much. Right, exactly. So there's a check on the moth by saying if you lay too many eggs in here, then none of these seeds are going to be going to make it to uh, the next stage of development for me. So I'm just going to drop that flower off and not continue to develop those seeds. So, um, so yeah, so there's sort of this check on uh, the system. And then the female moth doesn't want the flower to get another female to lay its eggs uh, inside the ovary of the flower. So after she lays her eggs, she'll scent mark it and then she'll fly off. So if another uh, wasp, or if another moth comes along and smells a flower and knows that there are already eggs in there, they're not going to waste their time laying the eggs because because then the flower might just drop off too many larvae. Yeah, exactly. Or it's already taken. Wow, yucca. So you can see in this relationship, there's this this tension, this constant tension between wanting to lay as many eggs as you can as a moth, but if you're the the plant, you don't want too many eggs to be laid in 
inside the flower because then all your seeds will get eaten but you fundamentally depend on the the moth for pollination without without this moth so people have been studying this for over 100 years and there's no evidence that anything other than these moths will pollinate the flowers so it's a pretty tenuous relationship uh, where they can't outdo the other one in terms of their competition and there's checks on it to make sure that they don't otherwise they would both get go extinct is this a, this is one species of yucca or this is most yucca yeah, it's all yucca. it's all of them yeah, yeah I'll do this. and there are a bunch of different moths uh each one specializing in one or a couple of wow yuccas so that's one type of service. Um, and then once the flowers go uh, get pollinated, hopefully, and then they develop fruits. And the ultimate goal of a flower is to attract uh, pollinators to move pollen from one flower to the other. And then the ultimate goal of the fruit is for dispersal of the seeds. And so it, plants often recruit animals to be able to provide that service. So there are tons of mutualisms that are centered around dispersal of the seeds and just like there were pollination syndromes there are dispersal syndromes so if you have like a small red berry who's going to be eating small red berries hummingbirds no that was a different <laughs> red i'm going to say birds though i think birds like red berries <laughs> i've seen a lot of birds eating red berries i've seen a lot of people eating red berries but you know i'm not sure we disperse the seeds as well yeah, so uh, we we don't because we just flush them into the toilet. <laughs> but in uh, I guess unless you're out camping. Um, so a fruit is a big energetic waste, right? So uh, fruit is mostly sugar and sugar comes from photosynthesis. So the things that are photosynthesizing the most that are out in full sun are going to be the ones that can develop fruit. Um, and it's and a big investment. It's a big investment for a plant. It's a huge a investment. And... You're trying to produce a fruit as cheaply as possible, that it is the lowest cost for the plant that is the most likely to get eaten by a potential uh, frugivore, something eaten, that eats fruit. Eaten and dispersed in a good Eaten, place. ingested, and then the seeds, which have a, a tough coating on the outside called a testa, um, that doesn't break down. And so the seed is protected in the digestive tract, and then uh, we'll get deposited somewhere else uh, after pack passing through a digestive tract so i used to uh, live out in santa barbara and i worked with this group called uh, growing solutions and they were doing restoration they had a whole bunch of different restoration projects uh, all over but they had some on the channel islands and i helped uh, germinate some plants for this class that i was taking and then we helped plant those plants out of one of the islands there and one of the plants that we were working with was uh, arctostaphylus which is in the blueberry family uh, and there are a couple different species out there their common name is manzanita and they have these little fruits on them and germination of if you just go around and collect the fruits then and then you try to plant the seeds, the seeds actually can't germinate. So there's extremely low germination rates. So in order to get them to successfully germinate, you have to do what's called scarification, where the method that we were using is you take them in a very, like a low concentration acidic solution, and then you pop them in the blender and you just pulse for a couple <laughs> of seconds. Wow. And the blender and the acids uh, help break down the seed coat the test so the seed coat is basically a protective layer that prevents any information from getting to the seed and the plant wants to time it right so that that seed coat breaks down so that oxygen water and sunlight can reach the the seed on the inside the em the developing embryo on the inside and say okay it's go time yeah so but then with um with some anything that produces a fruit that can be ingested like a one of these sweet fleshy fruits uh anything that produces those needs to pass through a digestive tract in order for the seeds to be able to germinate so uh I had a couple of questions so big fruits like peaches and plums that have these big stones they um were those adapted originally to some animal just gulping down the entire thing and pooping out because i don't know if animals many animals eat like this these giant seeds pits stones well yeah probably a lot of those have been selected for being significantly large like if you look at a domestic apple versus a crab apple 
So, well, that's actually an interesting thing. So we have some of these large, large fruits here that nothing eats. And so the question is, like, well, using this idea of a dispersal syndrome, these things must have been eaten by something that no longer exists because they're German. So I'll, I'll make it more specific. So Kentucky coffee tree have these giant pods that have this weird goo kind of stuff in it um, that nothing tends to eat those. And the seeds are really, really difficult to get to germinate unless you scarify them. And another one is uh, hedge apple or Osage orange. And they have these giant, they're softball sized. They look like round brains. Um, and, uh, um, and so these trees uh, are people used to use them on in like uh, on the frontier. They would put them in drawers to keep mice from eating things in there. They were like a mouse repellent. Um, and so for something like that, well, it's like nothing eats either Kentucky coffee or Osage fruits. So like how so what's do they going on with the disperse seeds? right and so there's this idea of dispersal syndrome where okay you have these things that are edible just not to anything that's still alive so one of the uh hypotheses for how they were dispersed is um from woolly mammoths the megafauna which is kind of wow. cool yeah so some large extinct herbivore that would have been able to ingest it whole pass the fruit through the digestive tract and scarify it and then it would be able to germinate after story that. i heard this when we lived in costa rica that some of their um i don't know if they had megafauna there but the story i heard was that <clears throat> some of the tr trees had fruits that used to be eaten by huge animals that were no longer around i don't think there was a big movement to try to bring back mammoths like jurassic park style um and have them thunder through the jungle but i think that would be cool there actually Here. is an active project right now to restore mammoths to uh yeah, the northern tundra and Canada and Siberia. For the plant's so, sake? So, <laughs> look for it. I mean, yeah, are these the plants plant essentially doomed? I mean, I guess Kentucky coffee tree, they're planted by humans and Osage, but if they've lost their main dispersal mechanism because these animals have died out, then perhaps those plants are on the way out as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a problem with specializing either in pollination or dispersal. Uh, through mutualism is that once if those animals go extinct then you no longer have that service being provided for you and if you fundamentally depend on it then that's so they've turned to humans problem. they've enlisted humans that we're talking about yeah exactly also. exactly Working. so domestication is a great strategy to continue the backup plan good to have a backup plan on. yeah i was also wondering this might <laughs> um well i was wondering most seeds, um, it sounds like, are digested and scarified, and then they're pooped out, and they have their fertilizer right there, so that's a good system. But are there is there any uh, plant that depends on some sort of spitting type thing? The animals will take it in, like a monkey or something, and like, spit it out, like, and then disperse it that way. Is there spit that you know of? Spit <laughs> pollinated. I mean, not spit. Spit dispersed fruit. Because I know I know some of my friends at least tend to be in the spitting types, and they would you know, eat an olive maybe and then spit out the pit. They're just bursting it in a sense. I, that's, I, Do I don't animals know. spit? Some animals must have learned to spit. There are fish that can spit, um, but Camels. they will spit out of water at insects that are on leaves hanging over the water and try and knock them off the leaf really? into the water so they can eat them. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, that's like reverse fishing. Kind of. Yeah, there's also another type of uh, cucumber that's like under pressure. It spits? Uh, or a type of squash. It's under pressure. And once the pressure builds up to a, a high enough point, um, or if like, I think if maybe an animal grabs it or something, then all that pressure just releases instantly and it spit the fruit itself spits all the seeds a great distance. Like um, a touch me nut. Sort of. Like a touch me what, but a water projectile. So this sort of hydraulic pressure. Wow, underwater spit. Which, yeah. yeah, I've tried. I'm not very good at it. Well, yeah. I so, mean, it just feels like monkeys would throw things sometimes or spit. I just feel like monkeys should be brought into the equation. <laughs> somehow. I like monkeys. Yeah, they must pollinate. Some, I mean, it must help with the seed dispersal somehow. Yeah, somehow. I speak for the monkeys, Teague, but we can move on. <laughs> um our monkey so, cousins i would die for eight monkey cousins eight of your cousins yeah it might have to be like 64 million um <laughs> maybe that would be the math yeah we'll do the math later so there are frugivores which are things that eat fruit and so the fruit is designed to be consumed and the seeds are designed to be pooped out but then there are uh seeds that are produced uh that are the seeds are large and nutritious 
to fuel the growth of the plant. So like an acorn or a walnut um, or an almond or something like that. But acorns are a great example where the acorn itself doesn't have a, a big fleshy fruity thing on the outside to attract individual animals to ingest it and then uh, pass it through their digestive tract. What they do is they produce an overabundance of seeds that are highly nutritious, and then animals will come along, collect those, and store them all over, and then the animals will die, or they'll forget about them. Forget about them. Or die. The dark scenario. It's a brilliant mutualism, but the... um, the trees don't want their fruits to be eaten. So they do a bunch of stuff to make their seeds extremely difficult to either uh, access or to digest. So walnuts have a extremely tough outer uh, coating around the seed. And um, it's actually used as an industrial abrasive because the shell is so hard. Really? Yeah. So, oh um, so then if you're a rodent, you have to chew through these. And so it reduces the amount of time that you can spend ingesting the food. So you could do like a mechanical defense. Like chestnuts? So, Is that with, with the chestnuts? Yeah, exactly. Spines? So it's, it's mutualism, but it's, again, it's mutual exploitation. So the squirrels are trying to get as much energy for themselves. They don't care about oaks or walnuts or chestnuts and the trees don't care about squirrels they just want to get their acorns outside of their canopy and so they're both trying to get the other one to do that with uh get what they want from the other one while expending the least amount of time as possible so with uh like red red oaks have extremely high concentrations of tannins in their acorns which make them extremely bitter and then white oaks don't have as much they're, They're more way delicious. more delicious, way lower concentrations of tannins. So the difference between the two ecologically is red oaks germinate in the spring and white oaks germinate in the fall immediately after falling. And so if you're a squirrel, you can um, you only have a short window to eat the white oak acorns. And so you're going to have to go after those immediately and you'll miss your window of opportunity. So they don't need to protect themselves as much from squirrels. The white oaks don't. You have to prioritize because, and then they drop a lot of them in the squirrels can't. Get yeah, the squirrels will bury will bury them will bury them presumably, even though they need to eat them right away. They'll yeah. Still bury so the them. squirrels' trick is that they'll actually chew the um, the embryo out, and the embryo is what causes the the uh, seed to germinate. And so they'll chew that out, and then they'll store it over winter. So they've sort of cheated this the white oak system. And then the danger for white oak is, uh, well, the question is like, well, why not just produce more tannins well that costs energy so you'd have to invest in in tannin production um and then the risk is that squirrels might eat you um but there'd be less time for them to eat you uh but then the other risk is that if you germinate in the fall then you have to survive the whole window with like a delicate younger plant um and then red oaks which germinate in the spring they are protected from squirrels which still seem to tolerate the acorns uh all right um, but they, yeah, so they have to survive the whole winter without getting eaten by squirrels. So white oaks drop their acorns and they germinate in the fall and they have this little seedling that survives the winter, essentially. A tough little seedling. Mm. What a dance this is, this mutual exploitation dance, which I think would be a good popular dance, yeah. you know, like the <laughs> Macarena. It would be educational. Yeah. Maybe there'd be some aggressive moves in there. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a dance and it's something that's not static. So it changes through time. So some of the other, uh, just to run through a couple of the other types of services or resources that you could be providing. Um, so uh, you might, if you're a plant and you're stationary, you can't run away if something comes to attack or eat you. Um, and so plants are not helpless in this and they're able to recruit beneficial insect predators. So there's something called extra floral nectaries. And if you look at the base of a cherry or a peach leaf, on the petiole, the thing that attaches the leaf to the twig, there are often these little knobs that are really prominent. And these are what are called extra floral nectaries. And so nectary is a structure that produces nectar. And so there are these little structures on the leaf that generate a lot of sugar, and uh, they are attractive to ants and sometimes to wasps. 
So uh, there are some varieties of peaches that don't have these extra floral nectaries. And if you look at the damage to the leaves on the two different individual plants, one with the nectaries and one without them, the ones that have extra floral nectaries are much, much healthier because they've attracted ants and wasps that help ward off leaf predators. Recruit your army. You recruit an army to Exactly. Yeah, so the plant is investing energy. You pay them. In getting these, uh, yeah, this army of of helpers to come to its aid. I'm just trying again. Again, I'm trying to think how I could use this in my personal <laughs> life. Maybe some more bodyguard type system. Yeah. Well, you'd have to. It would be like attracting maybe an entourage. <laughs> yeah. I, I I I don't have an entourage. Do you have an entourage? I don't. No. I have a dog and a two year old. <laughs> okay. Maybe you can recruit the dog and your two year old to be part of your initial entourage. But you might want to get some, you know, something that can sting a little more. So another last type of service that I'll mention is just uh, around cleaning. And so there are uh, um, examples of like cleaner fish or cleaner shrimp. Um, But one that I thought was cool that is maybe a less well-known one is just between red swamp crayfish, which we don't have up here in the Northeast, but down in Louisiana, this is an edible one. Uh, It's invasive all over the place because it's been transported all over um, for bait and for food. Uh, but the red swamp crayfish has a little type of annelid worm. So annelid worms mm-hmm. are ringed worms, like a earthworm. And they have one that lives in their uh, gills, and it will clean off their gills. So if they're like fungal spores or bacteria or protozoans, uh, the worms will a clean their worm. gills for them. A cleaning worm. So, I want one. Exactly, yeah. A little tiny a cleaning worm. So uh, this is a mutualistic relationship where... The red swamp crayfish is getting the benefit of being cleaned and having its gills free of potential parasites. And then the annelid worm is, uh, it has a filter feeder uh, that's actively moving around in the environment, but it also has protection. Um, and so, yeah. Is so the worm both deriving not benefits. native as well? Or is, was it a native worm that just took advantage? They're both, well, they're both native in their own region. I don't know if the, the worm, the worm's probably been exported. Are you saying then that if we go to Louisiana too. and get some gumbo, there's a good chance there's a lot of annelid worms in our increased protein? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the things that's kind of cool about this relationship is that uh, it's a mutualism for sure, but if you are actively feeding on the gills of something that uh, it might be filter feeding, you know, food or or taking food out of the environment. But if for whatever the reason that crayfish is strained or stressed for some reason and is not as active in foraging and you as the worm, if your population is large enough and you don't have access to food, you're attached to something that is also edible. And so this is a type of mutualism that can turn to parasitism. It can turn um, foul. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's sort of this fine line between a mutualist and a parasite. Um, and yeah, the the tables can turn if the environmental conditions uh, are less favorable to one of the mutualists. Wow. Another example of this would be like uh, with rhizobium, which is uh, the bacteria that live in the nodes of pea family things and also alders. They, uh, that type of bacteria fixes nitrogen. And in exchange, they get shelter and sugars from the plant. But in a situation where there might be a lot of soil or a lot of nitrogen in the soil, the plant doesn't necessarily need, need bacteria anymore. to fix the nitrogen. But if the bacteria are able to invade the roots anyways, they can parasitize the plant and actually be detrimental to the plant's health, huh. which is kind of a cool little exploitation of a system. Um, so it gives a pea family plants the ad- competitive advantage in nitrogen deficient soils but in situations where say it's like in a farm field or something like that where there's fertilizer being uh dumped on the field then uh those plants might actually wind up tipping the scales into parasitism uh this brings up a question i had again this seems to have some parallels in my past relationships of a mutually beneficial (laughs) yeah i'm not gonna say who the parasite was but there might be some clues from my potluck example earlier but uh when i was looking through the different kinds of relationships organisms have to each other and there's like one taking advantage of the other they're both helping each other or one's hurting the other is there is there a word for one where they're both hurting each other it's just a totally dysfunctional relationship between species they're both bad for each other yeah competition 
Oh, that's competition? Yeah. Okay. All right, good. Thanks. That yeah. was quick. Quick <laughs> Case answer. closed. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so mutualism can be around sort of these, re, uh, or mutualism can be around these different services that are being provided, but it can also be around, uh, like providing a resource like nitrogen fixation and providing that resource. Um, and so again, around this idea of mutual exploitation, if both things are exploiting the other symbiont, there are plenty of ways to cheat a system and there are countless examples of mutualisms where not every individual in a population is exactly the same or behaves the same in every single condition. And so there are examples like with rhizobium and uh, like clover, where some individuals in a population of rhizobium are um, actually either not capable of synthesizing nitrogen that's available to plants, or they can't do it as well. And yet they're still able to colonize clover. So again, with like with the rhizobium, not all the individuals are the same. And so they're not all as beneficial to clovers as every other one in the environment. The same is true with like flowers. So there are, if you look at um, like viburnums, a lot of viburnums, the flowers on the outside edge are infertile and don't produce nectar. And so what it kind of trains the insects to do is they might go to those first, but then after they land on that and they're like, oh, there's nothing here, then I'll check this flower over here. And then there might be some nectar in that flower. And so each flower on this inflorescence, this collection of flowers on an individual plant will have varying levels of nectar in every single flower. And so what that does is it's sort of like the um, the carrot you know, like if you hit the jackpot once while you're, you know, playing, uh, you'll keep coming back the, the slot machines, the slot machines. Yep. Then if you hit the jackpot once, you're like, I'm going to do it keep again. Putting in quarters. And so you're more likely to visit more of these flowers in search of that top reward. So there ever, this is a rule, not ex- the exception. Uh, the rule is that, uh, species of plants have nectarless flowers. So not all of them, but they're within a population, there are varying levels of nectar and there are some that just forego. That's cheating the system a little bit, but it trains the, it trains the pollinator to be more persistent in a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also to spend more time at every single individual flower. So there's more of a likelihood to get pollen on you. And also there's more of a chance that you'll go from one inflorescence to another individual. So the flowers don't have a particular investment in the pollinators other than getting the pollen to go from one flower to the other. So they want to guarantee, otherwise they just use the wind, they want to guarantee their pollen gets transferred. And so having these cheats of the system, these nectarless flowers, makes it more likely that the insects will spend more time going from flower to flower. Although there might be a risk the insects would be just, you know what, I'd rather have a, a plant that gives me more nectar more the time yeah better slot machine so so i'm changing plants yeah so insects can cheat the system too so there's nectar robbing where if you chew a hole in the back of the flower you can get right at the nectar rather than having to struggle at the front of the flower where you would be accumulating the pollen i do that just go straight for the the good stuff yeah (laughs) is that why all your peanut butter containers have holes at the (laughs) bottom at the bottom yeah the lid who has time for that knife the bottom and Especially just, if you get all the oil at the top. And you yeah, don't you don't that want if your that. peanut butter separates. Yeah, so yeah, you can go straight to the non-oily peanut butter if you just jab it at the bottom. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned at the, the beginning just around uh, the idea of like uh, uh, sort of these individuals in with reciprocal altruism. So with bats that might be depending on other individuals to provide food for them. Um and uh, with birds, you get a similar behavior where, or you can imagine meerkats that are all standing outside of their burrows. And if they see a predator, they're going to make an alarm. And so if you make an alarm, you draw attention to yourself and there might be more likelihood you'll that get you'll get eaten in that instance. But there's also more likelihood that in the, the next time, an individual will make an alarm call that you'll hear. Unless it's a crazy so, alarm that sounds so crazy and scary that the predator would just be like, I'm not messing with that one. I'm going to take a quiet one over there. 
<laughs> maybe howler monkeys. That's my strategy. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things is like uh, if you if you're in the northeast and you see a flock of chickadees move through, there's always other species that will move with them. That often they're less vocal. The mixed so flock. Yeah. Titmice will make alarm calls also, um, but they to me feel more like mooches, where they're kind of benefiting from the multiple eyes of the chickadees that are alarming and communicating about the environment all the time. And so the very few titmice that might move with a flock of chickadees are able to pick up on those alarm calls. And so it's sort of this indirect mutualism where sometimes the titmice will alarm if they see a potential threat, but mostly it's the chickadees carrying the lion's share of the work. Um, So they're a little bit of mutualists, but also the titmice are kind of, yeah, parasitizing like a cooper's hawk come in it's more likely to get the chickadees just because they're louder they're doing more of the work so they might get eaten more yeah yeah so i think that kind of wraps up our our discussion of mutualism um but essentially just to like highlight that mutualism is really tough to pin down to a specific pair of individuals behaving in a specific way there's there are countless different types of mutualisms that are centered around services and resources and the thing that i want to highlight is that they're also um it's like a fine balance that both individuals in the relationship are trying to maintain the edge over the other individual it's mutual exploitation mutual exploitation Hmm. so how does that fit back to the prisoner's dilemma because I was just assuming that your wife and I and and I would be cooperative, not mutually exploiting each other. That seemed to work for us in terms of our jail time. But mutual exploitation seems like you'd be more likely to try to screw over your 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 partner whenever possible. Yeah. So I mean, part of the problem. Uh, well, so in that example, it was probably a bad example because you both know each other and you both know me, and and so you would be less likely to screw over somebody that you know, right? Because you're going to have to interact with them tomorrow. So that's a little bit unreal. Well, or maybe eight years in the future um, <laughs> in that example. But uh, if if you interact with, um, it's why it's easier to exploit resources that are not in your hometown. So the idea of NIMBY, <laughs> not in my backyard, right? It's so much easier to exploit things that are distant from you that have right. no direct connection so to your for our listeners life. if you're going on a crime spree of some kind you want to go out of town for that is that one of the one of the lessons we're yeah, taking from this it would you feel way less guilty <laughs> at the end of it yeah it wouldn't disturb your social network as much yeah um i guess i still have a question so if it but, it, but in this game it's long term the benefit to is for for everyone to cooperate in the prisoner's dilemma but it sounds like in nature long-term, it's sort of benefit to try to cheat the system as much as you can. Well, so that's the thing, is that there are there are really no right strategies for that game. Um, there are different strategies that in some circumstances might be the best, and in other circumstances might not be beneficial at all. Um, and so, like, if you were... So if you were vindictive, or not vindictive, but if you were just negative and every single time you ratted the other person out and you encountered someone else that also every single time ratted you out. Cycle of violence. Or the equivalent in a natural interaction. Then you would both in the long run be way more harmed versus if you ratted someone else out every single time and then the other person never ratted you out. So there are different situations that... um, where different strategies make more sense. And within a population, like there are definitely differences in individual humans in their behavior patterns. Um, And this isn't always true with animals where there's like personality or with plants where there's personality, Um, but there's definitely variation. So, I mean, for example, like um, goldenrods do what's called ducking. And so if, uh, if this parasitic, uh, the, uh, gall fly that parasitizes the stems uh of the goldenrod they'll lay their legs or their eggs at a certain height on the plant but some individual goldenrods can duck so they they have this candy cane shape of growth 
that they grow low enough to avoid parasites early in the season when the parasites are laying eggs and then they right themselves and start growing upright again do they make like a u like they make a little u shape a little yeah exactly a little like s bend and not every individual can do that so it's like a personality of plants where some are capable of doing this behavior where they're they're ducking out and they're saying all right you guys take the parasites i'm going to steer clear and then come back up when we all produce our flowers in the fall i'm a ducker i think yeah. With my entourage, <laughs> if I duck down, there's danger. I duck down, and my entourage is like more likely to. I don't have an yeah. entourage now, but when I have one, I'm gonna duck a lot. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think we'll we'll leave it there, and then um yeah, so next time we'll talk about uh, commensalism and amensalism, but yeah, we we're sticking with the positive to start off uh, with our focus on symbiosis yeah, and it positive turns out mutual so exploitation. Positive. Still a little bit positive. Some, yeah. Everyone's. Everyone's getting something for the most part. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah, until next time, I'm Teague. And And I'm Glenn. And uh, thanks again, Teague. All right, naturalists. That wraps up part one in our six-part series on symbiosis. In our next episode, we look at commensalists, those moochie mutualists and their indifferent beneficiaries, and also at amensalists, basically every bad news bear movie right up until the final act. From there, it's on to exploitation, and then we'll wrap up the series with a look at competition. Episodes drop every fortnight, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to crowspath.org for your natural history fix, archived episodes, online programming, and lots more. Till next time, engage your curiosity, discover your world, and we'll see you soon on The Single Acorn.